Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Paul Shank. We continue our Lenten embrace of our mother's heart. I don't know if we need to be reminded again of Simeon's prophecy, which is the theme of our walk together, and um, whether we need, well, our time is considerably limited to what we want to uh, cover. And so um, we'll just go back a little bit to um, Simeon's prophecy in Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, because we said last week that we were going to look into Mary's heart, and in looking into her heart, we find four chambers, and we said there was a chamber for God, a chamber for Israel, a chamber for the Gentiles, and a chamber for the church. Last Sunday evening, we looked almost exclusively at that chamber for God, and rightly so, that we would spend our time pondering the greatness of that love. So that leaves us only this evening to reflect on the other three, Israel, the Gentiles, and the church. So let's be reminded now of the prophecy of Simeon. You remain seated. I will stand from Luke's Gospel and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. The Gospel of the Lord. This child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So, tonight we find that Mary... Miriam holds a place in her immaculate heart for her Jewish people, the people of 
Israel. Now, I often tell people when they ask me, where can we read something about the Jewish people? Where can we learn more about the Jewish people? And I always start by pointing out that some of the richest and deepest Catholic reflection on the Jewish people is found in the Catechism. If you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church and you just um, look in the index, it's much easier to search on your phone uh, than to find an actual bound volume um, and just put in Jewish people, Catechism of the Catholic Church, Jewish people, Israel. There's, there's so many references that I, uh, I couldn't possibly give them all to you tonight, but I'll just mention just a few if you have the Catechism at home. Um, number 781, 839, 1539, um, these are just a few, but there are many, many, and they're beautiful reflections and very enlightening when it comes to the relationship between the church and the Jewish people and the Jewish people in the church. But tonight, I'm going to use just one document of the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, and just one paragraph, number 55 of Lumen Gentium. And uh, this is a beautiful ponderance of the relationship between Mary and the Jewish people. First, uh, or rather, I'll read the last part of that paragraph first and then the rest of it because for our purposes it makes sense. The last shall be first. Mary stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord. I don't know that when they drafted Lumen Gentium, they took this language that they were thinking that our Lord's people in Israel, particularly Nazareth, but just our Lord's people, uh, we refer to as Am Haaretz, the people of the land, the common ordinary folk, the farmers, the uh, artisans, uh, the, 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 the poor humble folk. Um, Mary stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord who confidently hope for and receive salvation from him. With her, the exalted daughter of Zion, and after a long expectation of the promise, the times are fulfilled and the new economy, this comes from the Greek oikos household, the new household is established when the Son of God took a human nature from her 
that he might in the mysteries of his flesh free man from sin. There's so much in this one statement from Lumen Gentium, but we can't spend too much time here tonight. But again, the exalted daughter of Zion, the long-expected promise, the times being fulfilled, the new household, and the Son of God took a human nature from Mary, from her. Now we know that the very long-established and relied-upon firm law in Judaism is that one born of a Jewish mother is a Jew. And this is still the standard for making Aliyah to Israel to claim one's birthright. Uh, and it is established by the rabbinical court of Israel and also the religious court. Uh, uh, the rabbinical court, I'm sorry, and the supreme court of Israel. So it's both the civil and the religious court state that if one's mother is Jewish, one is therefore Jewish. This becomes very complicated, as is true with all things Jewish. However, um, the simple way to say it is that one knows one is Jewish when one's mother is Jewish. It's as simple as that. Um, was Mary Jewish? Um, <clears throat> a story that was told from the time of the um, Nazi terror, a story told by Jews. I heard this story told in my Jewish family, never told in my Christian family. Um, but the story told that when Hitler took over the churches of Germany, you know, he, Hitler appointed his own bishop, archbishop of the churches of Germany, and uh, of Nazi Germany. And um, so there was a rumor that some Jews had taken refuge in a particular church. And on a Sunday morning, with the service going on, an SS officer appeared in the back of the church and he commanded the attention of the pastor who was conducting the service and everything came to a, a stop and the SS officer said, if there are, we, 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 we have been told there are Jews in the church this is a Jewish story. And if, if there are Jews in the church, they are to come with me now. And there wasn't a stir. Everyone was frozen. And the pastor was, didn't know what to do. And then there was some rumbling. And the image of the Blessed Mother on one side of the altar came loose and dropped down into the chancel, and then there was a stirring. This is a Jewish story. 
where St. Joseph, the image of St. Joseph stirred and then dropped into the chancel, and the two images began moving toward the front, and then there was more rattling and stirring, and the figure on the cross came loose and fell to the chancel, and the three images walked down the aisle of the church and walked with the Nazi officer, and then the doors of the church closed, and then the service continued. That was a Jewish story that was told in my, my Jewish family. And I grew up with this, this strange idea of what happens on Sunday morning in Christian churches. <laughs> A con, a, 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 there was a comprehension um, that there's a connection, a real connection with the Holy Family uh, across this giant chasm. Um, on a much lighter note, I was in um, Birmingham and we had just done a taping of the EWTN broadcast, and we all went out afterward for something to eat, um, which of course uh, is mandatory for Christians when they gather. They must eat something. So we went out and ate. And uh, we were having a robust theological discussion at the table. And uh, the server was leaning in she was listening and leaning in. She kept coming back, spending an inordinate amount of time around the table, not taking any orders or <laughs> providing any service. And then she finally came over and leaned in and she said, I'm sorry, but I just couldn't help but listen to your conversation. And she told us that either her mother was Jewish and her father was Catholic or her father was Jewish and her mother was Catholic, I can't remember which, and she said, I grew up with both and I'm so confused I don't know which one is right and which one to choose. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't have to choose. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, just think for a moment. Our Lord was Jewish. She shook her head. I said, Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary, Jewish. She shook her head. I said, St. Joseph, Jewish. She said, yes, I guess. I said, the Apostles, Jewish. I said, you, you, you can't imagine an enterprise as great as the Catholic Church without some Yiddish cups. You have to have some Jewish heads there behind that mammoth organization. She smiled. And it, as we spoke a little more, it dawned on her really for the first time, even though she had a parent who was Jewish, it occurred to her for the first time that the church is Jewish at its, at its very heart and soul. So um, for whatever that was worth. Now, let's go on in Lumen Gentium.
the sacred scriptures of both the Old and the New Testament as well as ancient tradition show the role of the mother of the Savior in the economy of salvation in an ever clearer light and draw attention to it. The books of the Old Testament describe the history of salvation by which the coming of Christ into the world was slowly prepared. These earliest documents, as they are read in the church and are understood in the light of a further and full revelation, bring the figure of the woman, mother of the Redeemer, into a gradually clearer light. Now, what I'd like for us to do is just look at and reflect upon some scriptures that make this deep, abiding connection between the Blessed Mother and the Jewish people, her Jewish people. Now, Lumen Gentium goes on, when it is looked at in this way, she is already prophetically foreshadowed in the promise of victory over the serpent, which was given to our first parents after their fall into sin. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. If we look there just a moment, Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Lumen Gentium says that this is a foreshadowing of the Blessed Mother's foundational role in the plan of salvation, so much that she actually appears in the book of Genesis. Now, I've read to you from the Revised Standard Version, which is the English translation used for the Catechism. Um, does anyone have the Douay Reims translation tonight? Do you, would you read... Chap Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Would you read that last phrase one more time? Do you see the, the difference? Oh, the, the Latin version, the Vulgate, which the Douay Reims is the translation of, the English translation of, would rather have it she rather than he. Why is this? Well, this is, a, this is a, a very distinct difference between different versions of the Bible. The Hebrew Bible, which we have today, which we call the Masorah, which is the word for tradition, the traditional Bible, um, has it the way the Revised Standard Version has it. He shall bruise. So this is a prophecy of the triumph over Satan. And the reference here to he, then those who would read the Hebrew Bible would say this is a reference to Christ, the seed of the woman. The, 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 and this follows in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which also says he. Every Latin text the Old Latin, the Vulgate of St. Jerome says, she shall lie in wait 
and she will bruise, or he will bruise her, her heel. So the controversy, the conflict is between the woman and the serpent, rather than the child of the woman and the serpent. Why this discrepancy? Why this difference? We don't know um, how these two readings came about, except what we do know is that the Latin follows a much older version than the modern Hebrew Bible, or the contemporary Hebrew Bible. Most people will make the assumption that the Hebrew Bible would be older and therefore more authentic than the Latin or the Greek Bible. Book of Genesis. We would all make that assumption. I make that assumption and I know better. But I still make the assumption because it's a default. Um, actually, the oldest Hebrew Bible we possess the oldest Hebrew Bible that we possess is the Leningrad Codex, which comes to us from about 980 AD. Before that, we have fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew and Aramaic follow the Septuagint. The Septuagint um, is uh, a sort of bridge, but the Latin, the Old Latin, may have followed an older version. But regardless, Monsignor Knox, in his translation of the Bible, says that the witness of the fathers was that Mary, regardless of who we see in conflict in Genesis 3.15, Mary is integrally involved in this because it is her seed who defeats Satan, and so uh, regardless of how we see it. But nevertheless, uh, the church in Lumen Gentium says that this is a prophecy of Mary's role, integral role, in the plan of salvation, the defeat of Satan. Likewise, it goes on, she is the virgin who shall conceive and bear a son whose name will be called Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7.11. You know it very well. Um, you know this passage from Isaiah, which is read um, at Advent and Christmas. But I'd like you to see the verse just before it. Isaiah chapter 7 and uh, verse 12. Did I say 7.11? I meant 7.14. Um, but Isaiah 7 and verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, Beit David, the royal house of David. Now, the royal house of David is very important for us to understand the distinction when we speak of the line of David, we are speaking of the Jews, distinct from speaking of Israel. Israel is the larger nation, the 12 tribes, 
descendants of Jacob. The Jews are the distinct clan within Israel who are the descendants of Judah and Benjamin and Reuben, but never mind. It's complicated. But for our purposes, let's just understand this. The house of David is the house of Judah, and the house of Judah, Beit Yehudi, Yehudi, Jews. Okay? Jews. The term Jew and the term Judahite, same thing. So all Jews are descendants of Judah, which is the house of David. Okay? Except for those that are from Benjamin and those that are from Reuben and the Kohanim and the Levi, but that's too complicated. They're all in Judah now. Okay? So here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, a sign. I want you to make a correlation here. The, term, the word sign in the Hebrew Bible is shimon. Shimon, when it's anglicized through the Greek, is, you guessed it, Simeon. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold a virgin. Let's just pause there. Because we sing these verses again and again and again, and Handel's Messiah plays in the background over and over and over again, we lose the impact of what is being told to us here. Behold a virgin. That in and of itself is enough to be said, but more is said. Shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Immanuel. Immanuel. Uh, with us. Immanu, with us. El is God. With us is God. The Son with us is God. We can't spend enough time tonight on this. The Son with us is God. Behold a virgin. The Son with us is God. She conceives and the Son with us is God. So uh, we see what Lumen Gentium tells us is this gradual clarification, the, the, the vision of the Blessed Virgin becomes clearer and clearer across the ages. With each of these comes more light. Do you see how this is happening? From Genesis now all the way to Isaiah, lots in between, okay? She is the one who is in labor in Bethlehem and gives birth to the ruler of Israel who sits on the throne of David. This comes from Micah chapter 5 and verses 2 through 4. Micah 5, 2 through 4. Always look for more gospel in those 12, what we have come to call minor 
prophets. What is so minor about these prophets? Nothing. We only In Hebrew, we just call them the Twelve. Interesting, the Twelve. Micah 5, 2 through 4. I'm sorry, yeah, Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who has labor pains has brought forth. Then the rest of his brethren shall return to the sons of Israel. She who is in labor, who has labor pains, has brought forth. Again, Mary in the center of the economy of salvation. And the rest of his brethren shall return to the sons of Israel. What does this mean? Perhaps what it means is that the gospel went forth. Christ sent out his apostles. St. Paul tells us to who first and then to who? To the Jew first. To the house of Judah first. Ruler of Israel. The house of David is the house of Judah. And so the gospel would have to go to Judah, to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, because he was coming as ruler of the house of David. He sat on the throne of David. So he would, so his brethren, the apostles, would go first to Judah, to the Jews. And there Mary is right in the middle of this. She's the one in labor who gives birth. And then the ruler comes into the house of Judah, the house of David. And then the apostles go first to the Jews, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, right? This is the progression of the gospel. Exactly as Micah tells us. Exactly as Micah tells us in the 8th century B.C. 800 years before Jesus is born. Follows exactly that pattern. Finally, she is the daughter of Zion whose king rides on a donkey and who commands peace to the Gentiles and whose dominion is from the ends of the earth. This is Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Remember that Lumen Gentium called the Blessed Mother the daughter of Zion, the exalted daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So now, the daughter of Zion, the exalted daughter of Zion, who is identified in Lumen Gentium with the Blessed Mother, she rejoices because her son is going to Jerusalem. And of course, we know why. He's entering into his passion. This is Palm Sunday. This is the prophecy that is fulfilled on Palm Sunday. 
from Zechariah. We must hurry along. So now we move to the lineage of Mary. The lineage of Mary is found in Luke 3, 23 through 38, but we can't spend too much time there, unfortunately. Luke 3, 23, and I'll just give this to you as a reference. We won't spend any time with it at this point. Just suffice it to say that we have two lineages of David in the Gospels, one in Matthew chapter 1, and one in Luke chapter 3. They are the same until we reach the house of David. And then they depart from one another and they have different lines leading the earliest church theologians to suggest that Luke gives us not Jesus' lineage, but Mary's lineage, the line that she comes from. So, Matthew would have Joseph's lineage and um, Luke Mary's lineage, Joseph's being the foster father. And this is according to the Mishnah, um, which is uh, a, a, an interpretation of Jewish law that comes to us from the time of the New Testament, which says that if a, if a man adopts a child, it is as if the child proceeded from his loins. So there's no distinction made as far as Jewish law is concerned. So Joseph's lineage would become our Lord's lineage by Jewish law, by the Mishnah. But Luke would give us Mary's lineage so that we have his actual descent. Is that understandable? And so we have, again, Mary in the house of David, the house of Judah, and all the way back to the patriarchs of Israel. And then finally, we have the Magnificat in Luke 1, 46 through 55. You know this so well. You know it very, very well. So we'll just look at verse 55, the phrase, and he spoke to our fathers, Avenu, Avenu, our fathers. This is a refrain in Jewish invocations. Um, Avenu, Avenu Malkenu, Avenu Malkenu, our father and our king. This is a way that Hebrew prayers are opened uh, very, very frequently. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his posterity forever, and Mary remained with her about three months. So we have Mary invoking Abraham as her father. So we see now why there is a chamber in Mary's heart for her own Jewish people. How could she not have a place of love for her own Jewish people? We must move on. Mary holds a place in her heart for the Gentile peoples. And this was a very scary thing. Just think for a moment about what the Gentiles represent to Mary. There was first the Assyrians who rampaged and ravaged Israel and carried away 80% of the population never to be found again in the course of history. Then after came the Babylonians who carried away the rest into slavery in Babylon. And after Babylon came the Persians and the Persians again uh, established 
overlordship and made the Jewish people, allowed many of the Jews to return under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, but they were still slaves and not free. After the Persians came the Greeks, and the Greeks said, no more circumcision, and if there is circumcision, it has to be put back. <laughs> no, honestly, that's what they said. And they made them go through cruel surgical procedures to try to restore what was taken away in the circumcision. Imagine, imagine, imagine what that meant to the people. How horrifying that was. Then, after the Greeks, came the Romans. And you know Romans, what they're capable of. And if you go to the Forum in Rome today, you see the arch, you've seen it, with the Jewish slaves carrying the furniture of the Holy Temple into Rome. It was a great, the Arch of Titus, the Arch of Titus, and the, tri the triumphal arch, what proves that Rome is the dominant force in the world and will never be defeated is that they now have Jewish slaves in Rome who will build the uh, build the uh, Colosseum. Thank you. Will build the Colosseum. So this these are the Gentiles for Mary, not not the kind of people you want to go out to dinner with. Scary group, very threatening. Mary has a place in her heart for the Gentiles. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 12, 1 through 5. We must hurry along. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. 12. She was with child, and she cried out in pangs of birth, in anguish for delivery. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head, his heads, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them down to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she, is brought, when she brought forth. She brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations. The nations. Here, the word in Greek is Gentiles. We've seen the Hebrew prophets saying that he will rule Israel and the house of Judah, the house of David. Now we have something more. He's also going to rule the Gentiles. He's going to be ruler of the Gentiles. So Mary's son is also the emperor of the Gentiles, king of the Jews, but emperor of the Gentiles. This is a prophecy in reverse, so to speak, because it's in the Revelation. Mary is present in the upper room. Acts chapter 1 and 2, the Acts of the Apostles. I'm, I'm moving along here for the time. And uh, chapter 1 of Acts of the Apostles, verse 14, All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Verse, or chapter 2, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. You see that in one accord? 
Suddenly a sound came from heaven like a rush of a mighty wind and it filled the house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire. This is chapter 2, verse 3. Distributed and resting on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then all the different languages are listed. We can't spend too much time there. But to say this, what is going on here? And Mary is in the middle. Mary is in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes down and reverses first Babylon. At Babylon, Genesis 11, chapter 11. We can't spend any time there. Genesis chapter 11, they build a ziggurat, a pagan temple. They want to get as high as God. And what does God do? He gives them the 70 languages. And now they can no longer confederate, confederate and they can't accomplish their goal of becoming deities. So he scatters them and makes them into the nations. The languages and the thought pattern that comes with language divides them up and makes them the Gentiles. The Gentiles are made in Genesis 11. And what is it? It's the scattering of the languages so they cannot understand each other. That creates the Gentile peoples. And Pentecost is the reversal of that. Because now they speak all the languages of the earth, but they all understand each other on Pentecost. They're, they're, they're praising God and they understand one, and they're perplexed. Why can, why can I suddenly understand? Because this is the reversal of Babylon. And it's also a rehearsal of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And there's a blast of a trumpet sound. It says uh, that it was, in Hebrew, the phrase is that it was a deafening sound. It was a cacophony, an, uh, an, an, an indiscernible noise. A roar is another way that it might be translated. Well, in that roar, the rabbis say the very, very ancient Jewish tradition, one of the oldest Jewish traditions, is that the reason it was indiscernible and a roar was because when God gave the commandments on Sinai, he spoke it in all the languages of the world. But only the Israelites said, all that the Lord says, we will do, amen. So all the Gentiles were standing around going, not sure... Let's, maybe we should get more information. But the Jews said, Amen. That's the tradition. So it's a rehearsal of Sinai and a reversal of Babylon, of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And who is in the middle of this? Mary. She's in the middle. Because she's the bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because the son she will bring forth will be ruler in Israel and emperor of the Gentiles. Never heard of before. Unknown. Never happened before. But now is fulfilled through Mary. Mary is the one who brings forth the ruler of Israel and 
the emperor of the Gentiles. When the tongues were restored, the unity was restored between the people who had been fragmented and fractured from one another. And I'm getting the time signal. And uh, which leads us to our third point. Mary has a place in her heart for the church drawn from the Jews and the Gentiles. One of the most ancient traditions of Mary is that she was given as mother of the church by her son at the foot of the cross. In John chapter 19 and verse 26, John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The, from this comes the great tradition that our Lord gave Mary to the disciple as mother of all disciples, mother of the church. As I said, Mary is present in the upper room when the tongues of the nations, the Gentiles, are restored. Mary gave her own son his body. And now, mother to his offspring, which includes the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 2. The letter to the Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 22. We can't spend enough time there, but I give you the citation and I'll just highlight uh, uh, just a little bit there. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, just looking at verses 14 through 16. For he is our peace. Now, peace came in once before in Zechariah 9. In Zechariah 9, he would bring peace. And I want to comment on that just a moment, so hold that thought. Our peace, who has made us both one, who is us, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The peace here is very, very important for us to understand because, first of all, it's repeated twice in this one phrase, and it's an invocation of Zechariah 9 and also of Isaiah, the prophecies that promise peace. Why? Is it just the absence of hostility? No, no, no. You have to understand the meaning of the word for peace, which in Hebrew is shalom. Shalom. In Hebrew, peace is shalom. What does shalom mean? Sha'a olam. Do you see it? Sha'a, that which, that which is, that is, olam, together. That which is together. What is fractured and fragmented and torn apart is brought back together. And this is exactly what St. Paul is speaking of here. Even today, olam is the universe. And how do we call the church today? The universal church, right? Catholicos, right? 
universal. So the peace is the one new man. The Jew and the Gentile brought back together again. This long history of division now is remedied. Now is remedied. And who is at the center of this but Mary? She is mother of his offspring, and his offspring are drawn from the Jews and the Gentiles. And so there is a chamber in Mary's heart for the church drawn from the Jews and the Gentiles. Returning to Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, where the exalted daughter of Zion, whose king rides on the donkey and who commands peace, shalom, to the Gentiles, and whose dominion is to the ends of the earth. The universal church. In her pure and perfect immaculate heart, the heart pierced through by the sword, Mary has a chamber for God. Be it done unto me according to your word. In her pierced heart, she has a chamber for Israel. The promise that he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. In her pierced heart, she has a chamber for the Gentiles. You who were once Gentiles have been made, have been brought near and made both of us one, Paul says in Ephesians. And in her pierced heart, she has a chamber for the church, the family of God drawn from Jews and Gentiles from all peoples. And so like Mary, we must have a place of love in our hearts for God, for our own people, for others not like us, and finally for the church. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.